Father God, as we gather together uh, around your word, uh, we pray that uh, you would speak to us by your spirit, that you would teach us, and that you would grow us in Christ. Uh, we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, we continue our series in 1 Corinthians. Today we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, you should have an outline and even a Bible study. Uh, we might be relieved we've moved on from chapter 7. Uh, and now we get to matters seemingly about food. And who doesn't like talking about food? Uh, we might come to a text like this with questions even. Uh, maybe we have questions about uh, halal meat or eating bacon sandwiches and whether that's okay to do in front of Jewish people. Or maybe we have questions about teetotalers and drinking alcohol in front of them. Uh, as we look at verses 1 to 3, would you please, with your Bibles open, uh, look, at it with, look at it with me, please. The Apostle Paul writes, Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Well, isn't that reassuring? We all know something. Yay! And uh, that would have the strong, uh, in this passage, the strong, the well-instructed, the spiritual elite, that would have them nodding their heads. Yeah, we know something. Yeah, we know stuff. But see the contrast, because how does the verse continue? But knowledge puffs up, while love builds up. Did you see the contrast? Have you got it there? What is it? Knowledge puffs up, but... Beautiful. Uh, let's look at verse 2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. So if you think you actually know something, there's a good chance you don't. Ouch. Verse 3, but whoever loves God is known by God. And being known by God and being loved by God, that, well, that's, that's the psalm. That's better than life. That's no small thing. Well, might we know something? Uh, mental assent to stuff is easy, but that's entirely different to the relational thing of love, particularly loving God. And we all need to hear the, that message, that point. Preachers, church leaders, Bible study leaders, theological students and graduates, all of us, all of us need to hear this. That sure, we know stuff and that's okay. But the whole way of knowing is deeply defective unless it's anchored in love. To the supposedly strong, Paul says, well, let's, I think he's saying, well, let's assume you do know something. Let's go with knowledge for a moment. What do we apparently know? So verse 4, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know, there it is again, we know that, what do they know? An idol is nothing at all in the world. 
Are you happy with that? You are? That was a good, confident yes, Mick. Uh, that's good. What else do we know? Verse 4. And we know that there is no God but one. Are, are you happy with that? Okay, because that's Deuteronomy, and you just read it in Deuteronomy. And, and don't hear me when I say this, because I don't think Paul is going to disagree with you at all. But I want to, do want to say that he's actually up to something, I think. See, I want you to imagine the Corinthian Christians reading this letter together. And remember, as they gather in the room and it's being read out loud, remember what's outside in the city square. As your imagination takes to the ancient world of Corinth, you can see shrines, you can see temples to gods like Apollo. You can see, still see today the ruins uh, of that ancient temple. You can see, can you see the priests butchering the meat as a sacrifice? The food court attached to the temple is open, which sells this idol sacrificed food. And just about every aspect of civic life is saturated with idol worship somehow and it's busy with people. Can you imagine that? And now that you've got your imagination, okay, we read verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, what? Huh? Uh, whether in heaven or on earth, really? As indeed there are many gods and many lords. Well, yeah, sure, yet for us, there is one God the Father. Do you see what I reckon he's done? I think he's just having a bit of fun with him. Yeah, sure, you can say an idol is nothing at all in the world. And yes, that is true. But have a look around you. In the context of Corinth, uh, idols are no small thing. And uh, maybe in the context, it's wrong to downplay that its impact on uh, life and on church family life. In fact, later in chapter 10, Paul will say, flee from idolatry. And then in chapter 10, verse 20, he's going to say that idolatry is demonic. So it has a spiritual dimension to it. I mean, it is true before the living God that idols are redundant. Yeah, that's true, but it's Paul's saying, you know, guys, you think you know stuff, but it's not actually that easy. Do they expect new Corinthian converts just to switch off just like that? I mean, how are they to do that? What, what was the other truth? The other truth that God is one, right? And we all went, yes, that's true. Uh, but again, more fun. Look at, look at verse 6. And every time he says one, put your finger up. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all, all things came and for whom we live. And there is but, oh, there's one Lord, okay, uh, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through, that, like that's not been an issue in church history. One God, one Lord. Oh, just as well he didn't go to the Holy Spirit, he'd really have their heads spinning. That's, that's three, isn't it? And so the arrogance of the strong who apparently knows stuff, is apparent. See, verse 2, you think you know stuff, but I wonder if this is Paul's way of saying, you know, there's gravity and depth to these truth claims that's missing. You can claim even biblical truth. But these are easy statements. Okay, they're even true, but 
I actually think they're a bit shallow. I wonder if that's what's going on with Paul. Because life doesn't happen in a vacuum. Look at verse 7a. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Not everyone supposedly knows what you know. Verse 7b. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Some, as we've already pointed out, some are, are going to still be gripped by the influence of idols. And the weak, it seems, they're, they're lapsing back into it. And I wonder if that's a problem. I wonder whose problem that is. Whose problem is that? And here we see why the weak are weak. Why are they weak? Well, Christians often grapple with trying to work out how to hold on to our belief, our understanding of the gospel. How do we hold it together in the day-to-day -day stuff of life as we flick the TV on, as we have conversations with our neighbours? And it's a battle, especially if our spiritual formation is brand shiny new and for the christian our consciences we're they're to be shaped by the gospel aren't they not simply just a matter of right and wrong but the lens of the cross how we serve and honor christ is to shape and saturate our thinking i mean how does that old hymn go may the mind of christ my saviour By his power and love controlling all I do and say. That's a big, they're big words, aren't they? And there is, what is, that? there's a Christian conscience, ideally, that we sing about, where we invite God, we ask God, God, make this happen in me. That I might be more like your son. That Jesus would be the filter for my thinking, that Jesus would shape my behaviour and what he's done for me on the cross, where I've been forgiven, where I've been redeemed, where I've been rescued from a life of sin. But of course, when we become Christians, well, transformation doesn't happen all at once, does it? It doesn't happen like that. Uh, I mean, a lot can happen. But we really are, thank goodness, we are all a work in progress. And it's like learning to walk. Some of us stumble or trip or make mistakes. But as we learn, we grow in faith and repentance, I pray, and we become more like Jesus. We grow in Christ. That sounds like a really good vision, doesn't it? Which helps explain why verse 7 is still a thing in the world, why idolatry is still pervasive. Now, don't hear that comment as permission or an excuse. It's not even remotely okay. But it's one of the challenges of the Corinthian church. And they've got to grapple with it. And that's what Paul is writing to. So two <laughs> propositions are being tossed up. And I think they've been shown to be a little, well, at face value, a little shallow in the context. Here's another verse 8. Paul's going to say another thing that is supposed to ring true. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. Again, true. Yeah, of course that's true. Praise God that is true. But again, like the other statements, 
Can we adopt this truth outrightly and unqualified? And you might say, well, yeah, Adam, Jesus said in Mark 7 that all foods are clean. And if all foods are clean, if all food is okay for us to eat now, we've moved out of the Old Testament and uh, uh, it no longer applies, we'll bring on the bacon sandwiches. Who doesn't love a bacon sandwich? My, my dad would have a bacon sandwich every Sunday morning without missing a beat. Jesus said he could. Jesus says he can. And Paul will say elsewhere that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Romans 14 verse 7. And can you hear then, as we claim biblical truth, can you hear the voice of the libertarians crying out, you're free. You are free to do what you like any old time. Or is that the Rolling Stones? Oh, well, it's both, isn't it? It's not a new idea at all. Eat what you like. Drink what you like. And so the question must be, well, I need to get that truth, and, and is, that a, is that okay? Can we claim these truths, this knowledge, and, and wield it in the name of freedom and rights at any cost? And you're probably a bit nervous because you know how the other two points went. And that's right, this is another, is it a stitch up? Well, maybe, maybe not. But it's certainly how Paul exposes the pride of the strong, where he makes it really obvious they're using these truths really just for selfish ends. Yeah, it's true. But how terrible it is to use biblical truth for selfish reasons. It's a sin to use such knowledge as a weapon for self-serving and self-justifying purposes. It doesn't glorify God, it just glorifies you. See, the great concern of this text isn't your knowledge. It's not our knowledge. And it's not your freedoms. The great concern of this text is our love for other believers, especially the weak, those who don't have it quite worked out. We're all supposed to care about the weaker brother in verse 7. Remember I said whose problem is it? The weaker brother of verse 7 is supposed to be our problem, the church's problem. But Paul's point is that these strong, these supposed know-it-alls, they don't care less. They do not care. So verse 9, here comes the command. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? You see the picture here? Can you see the strong, those who supposedly got it all worked out, see them strut down to the temple like a proud rooster? And they're eating at the temple food court, because they can, right? And they, and they make a proud statement that they're free. Oh, well, we're free. And see the strong proudly elevate themselves above everyone else who cannot eat. They can't eat with the same sense of detachment from these idols. 
And maybe they're being the strong. Maybe they're being deliberately confronting. Maybe they're showing off. Because I know what I know. Because they think they have knowledge. But that is sending all the wrong signals to those who are weak. Those who, the weak, who haven't worked out how to get on with life in pagan Corinth themselves. Those who haven't completely disengaged from their former life. They see those who are supposed to be well instructed, those who are supposed to be leaders, those who are, we might say, should know better, they see them partaking because eating and worship is all part of the same caper to them. And so the strong are tempting them to err when instead they should be fostering maturity in the weaker brother or sister. The weak, look at that word in verse 10, they're emboldened. What an interesting word. It literally means they're built up. They're built up to go and do the wrong thing. When instead, back in verse 1, what, what builds up in verse 1? Love. Love is supposed to build up. Love seeks to build up sound understanding in others. And we see that in Paul in verse 13. He says, well, I'd sooner go without, lest somebody fall. But lovelessness, this knowledge that puffs up, this self-love, this me, 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 look at me, my wants, my entitlement, my freedom, that serves to destroy. Now, how about halal and bacon sambos and alcohol? Let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, when I was 18, my father would teach me about good manners and I remember when I turned 18, he took me out and we had dinner and a movie. I wish I could remember the movie, but I can't. And he, he, bought me, he bought me a shandy, if you know what that is, right? Not too much too soon, right? And he gave me tips like, well, son, when you go out, wear proper shoes and make sure they're clean and don't wear runners with your nice pants because girls just don't like that, Right? Uh, girls don't like you. Got to dress smart, and when it, and and it was all part of dad's education, you know. And drinking, son, he would always say to us, uh, never drink in front alcohol in front of people that don't. Um, if you know they're teetotalers, just he'd say, son, just don't go there. Won't hurt you to go without, uh, lest they think ill of you. See, lest they think Ill, it's it's about them. And you can draw that truth from verse 9, absolutely sure. It's, it's not not there. And certainly Christians living in a society where alcoholism is prolific, I think like Paul, we need to be willing to say, you know, tonight I'm happy to go without. Or I'm happier with significantly less as part of our witness. Because we're Christians, aren't we? But, but this... This isn't written by Paul just so we can simply have good manners. Okay? This isn't Paul trying to get his Dame June Dally Watkins on and put us through a school of etiquette. This passage does more than answer the question about eating pork in front of Jews. Of course, the answer is, of course, you wouldn't do that. Because that'd be rude. 
It's not even about the question of halal food. It's not, not really the primary thing going on here. The great concern of Paul is the church's love for one another. That's a great concern. We are supposed to care so deeply about the spiritual formation of one another, our growing of Christ, especially the, well, the less well-instructed, the weak. We're supposed to care deeply about the spiritual well-being of, of, of one another. And so whatever our question about alcohol, or whatever our question about halal meat, or whatever it might be, our question must be, is my present action helpful in loving and building my brother or sister up in Christ Jesus? Or am I enabling their fall and destruction to hell? I think that question helps us understand the text. And I think it helps us understand how we engage with those other issues. See, the strong are guilty of the latter. Their actions are decidedly loveless. But this passage here in 1 Corinthians is to encourage the body of Christ to love the body of Christ. Paul's intention is that we cast whatever freedoms we might have aside and think and act and eat even or drink in ways that build up love in our church family. Firstly, and then by extension, our witness to the world. See, at this point, you might still be wondering who the weak are. And in our context, well, it's going to be what I've said all along. It's the less well-instructed. And in our context, context, that's going to be largely children who hang on our example, learning things, or our youth. I saw the impact of my example on my children on the holidays. I listened to YouTube all the way home, and the kids are going, put it on my iPad, Dad. I'm thinking, wow, that's an influence, isn't it? Parenting wins, some might say. Imagine if I could use that for the gospel. Maybe the weak are people that have only recently shown interest in spiritual things, who find much of the scriptures bewildering and confusing, and they feel like they're in the fringe, or when they come to church, they feel like they've landed on Mars. You know, because the guy wearing the dress up the front and all that still coming to terms with Jesus and his gospel, but equally, you know, this could be a long-standing church member who's yet to work it out. That's also true. That prospect might frighten some of you, but it's true. And so the weak need us. They need our patience and they need our care and they need our love and they need our good example. And it wasn't the strong that Jesus went looking for either, was it? Jesus searched high and low for the lost, the weak, the poor, and the needy, the humble of heart. And so our church services, our meetings, our Bible studies, they must be places that seek to welcome and build up in love those who might otherwise be weak. And we should do that because that's the Christian model, isn't it? We should be open to that. Our Bible studies must not be a closed shop, nor must our church, because we think 
We're too clever for everyone else. We've got to have regard for the body. And love is the priority. Love is the priority which comes before any claim to freedom or any kind of right you think you have. So again, I say, this is about us. Christ's church, his body and our witness to each other. Our spiritual concern for one another. Our discipleship of one another. How we get on. How we nurture. How we encourage. How we hold each other accountable. And build each other up in love. That we would grow, not regress in Christ, if that's possible. Which is substantially more than matters of wisdom and good, and, uh, good manners. Verse 11, we can't miss this. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. I think Paul is getting his cranky pants on here. For whom Christ died, did you see that? And here is why, another reason why this matters so much. For these same, the, the very same people Christ died for, the very same people for whom Christ lay aside his rights and his power and his authority, the same people who, whom Christ shed his blood so that, so that we, they can enjoy forgiveness. And Paul says, you so-called strong, you so-called know-it-alls, you're just throwing them under a bus. You're conducting yourself in a way that is spiritually harmful to them. And so it is clearly a sin to lead believers away from their devotion to Christ, to encourage them to choose another path or to compromise, to send them back to where they came from. Verse 12. When you sin against them in this way, you wound their weak conscience. You sin against Christ himself. It's a sin against them. It's a sin against Christ to act in a way that enables a weaker brother to fall. And that is diabolical. For we are members of a body for whom Christ has died. We've been purchased at a price. We have witness to each other, here to each other, and out there in the world. And it means you coming to church today really isn't all about you. It means being God's person out there in the world isn't really all about you. It's about Christ. And by extension, it's about Christ and his body. Our witness to each other. So we have regard to each other in all things. Does this mean there will never be upsets or disagreements? Oh, I wish. Uh, no, of course not. It's not the issue. That is not the issue. The issue is whether our actions lead or encourage another to sin against their conscience. And so may we exercise our freedoms carefully and curb them if we need. May we even dispense them if we need to. May we lay our rights and freedoms aside for the good of other people. And as we do that, may we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who first loved us selflessly, who put us first, and so we go out and love one another selflessly, humbly putting one another first. Amen.